Dan Glickman's autobiography is titled Laughing at Myself, subtitled My Education in Congress, On the Farm, and at the Movies. Former Representative Glickman served in Congress for 18 years and was defeated for his 10th term in 1994. A native of Wichita, Kansas, Mr. Glickman went on to serve as President Clinton's Agriculture Secretary from 1995 to 2001. In 2004, he replaced Jack Valenti as Chairman and CEO of the Motion Picture Association of America until 2012. In our interview, we spent some time talking about his interest in humor. Dan Glickman, first and foremost, why did you write a book? Well, you know, I thought I had a, an interesting life and uh, kind of the American story of the grandson of immigrants who came to this country penniless, couldn't speak English, ended up in Kansas, uh, did well in business, uh, had a grandson who became a congressman and secretary of agriculture and chief lobbyist for Hollywood. And I thought, that's a pretty good story, even, even, if, even <laughs> if nobody else thinks so. I did. <laughs> but at what point did you decide to call it Laughing at Myself? You know, actually, I have to tell you, the original title was going to be Designated Survivor, because I tell that story, you know, when I was the designated survivor uh, yeah. with the Capitol that time. And the uh, University of Kansas uh, was the publisher, and they said, you know, your book is about humor. We need to put that in the title somehow. So then the uh, the publisher uh, and I got together, and he and and he we talked about self-deprecating humor, and that's where the laughing at myself came in. That he he thought the point being made is, is that at myself was the real the, the strong point because he says that's what's missing so much in in politics today. Who were Gladys and Milton. Well, I think they were my biological parents, uh, as far as I'm aware, and I'm pretty sure because I share genetic qualities, uh, <laughs> the good, the bad, and the ugly. I, not the ugly. They weren't ugly, but the good and the bad, mostly good, uh, both of them. And they were, um, they were, my dad was born in Wichita. My mother was born in Kansas City. Uh, they were married 64 years. And uh, most of those years were pretty good. Not all of them, but uh, they, there was a lot of humor and a lot of conflict in my family. But the humor got me through the conflict, and they were both unconditionally supportive of, of their kids, um, which I think was, uh, you know, certainly made a big difference in my life. And both my parents had extremely good senses of humor, different kinds of humor, but it was part of their lives. Okay, this line in your book, being Jewish in Kansas means you stick out. Yeah. Well, I mean, there weren't very many of us, uh, but I'll, I'll be honest with you. I never really faced uh, any serious anti-Semitism, at least overtly to my face. And, and you know, when I was going into the farm country, uh, when I was campaigning or working, and a lot of people had never met anybody Jewish in, in, in their lives, and, and some of them would ask me questions. But, um, you know, what do you believe in or, or, you know, but my dad had been in the scrap iron business and the oil business, and he did a lot of business with farmers in the, in the, uh, I used to go with him when I was in high school. And, and so I, I, I saw the way that, you know, he dealt with people and, and quite frankly, I found being Jewish to be an asset. Uh, you know, I was different from a religious perspective, but, uh, 
uh, it, it, it certainly didn't hurt me. I got elected to Congress and with the probably less than 300 Jewish families in the entire district. All right. Um, we, we're going to talk about the humor in, in your life. And I'm just going to read you one little Milton joke, meaning your father. You know, I proposed to my wife in a garage and then I couldn't back out. Yeah, I heard that story about 7,000 times. My mother heard it about 10,000 times. Um, and uh, that was probably one of the cleanest ones that he had. Uh, my my dad was from the school of humor, more like a Rodney Dangerfield, if people remember him. He, he didn't tell stories. He told, you know, one-liners and, and jokes. And he also subscribed to joke services. Back then, you didn't have Google, so you'd 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 subscribe and... When he died, uh, we looked in his de- office desk and we found 10 legal pads completely filled with jokes, one-liners, just like that one. And um, he just he, he, he would write them down and he would use them, and people would call him uh, from all over the place to say, well, Milton, I'm going to give a speech on X. Do you have a good story for this? And he, was, he did this as like his avocation in life. And, and my poor mother was the butt of a lot of these jokes, but... But she was pretty funny herself, much more naturally funny. Well, here's one that he told. And your mother and I have sex almost every night, almost on Monday, almost on Tuesday, and almost on Wednesday. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She also heard that one about 7,000 times. <laughs> but I, I've, I've also told that joke myself uh, about me and my wife as well. So, you know, it, it, I don't know if that's a politically incorrect joke or, or not, but it's pretty funny. Now, Connie Devley, who um, used to work at C-SPAN and used to work for you, uh, told me to ask you whether you knew that people would stand, your staff would stand at the back of the room when you gave a speech and say, oh, no, he's not going to tell that joke again. Yeah, well, that was their problem because it worked for me. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, I, I, I could read a crowd pretty well. And so um, uh, the, I, I knew that the staff may have heard the stories quite a bit. It was only when Conley, Connie or the person who ran the office, Myrn Rowe was her name, she was my debate teacher in high school and was my chief of staff most of the time, would say, you cannot tell that joke again. It will, it will come back to haunt you. And, of course, she had never heard of the social media at the time. Thank God we didn't have social media at that time. <laughs> well, here's one more, you li- and you list a bunch of these. You, the other night I swallowed a muffler. The next morning I woke up exhausted. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a joke that probably wouldn't be as funny today as it was 30 or 40 years ago. Well, so what what kind of jokes did you tell? Uh, you know, m- most of the – I mean, I would find jokes to tell, but most of my jokes were uh, – um, uh, you know, longer stories that I would read about. And I would also buy joke books, too, um, and, and, and especially joke books that were uh, – I, I bought a lot of the Bob Dole stuff because he was pretty funny. Barney Frank was pretty funny. I used to hang out with people in, in, in Congress who were, who were funny, and, uh, and uh, there was a way to pick up, pick up humor. But the other thing is, was I learned kind of is making fun of yourself. Um, when you did when you did a foible or you did something wrong, and I also used to use singing as a way to uh, kind of get attention and 
and I'm, I'm a pretty bad singer, and and the staff used to tell me it was getting worse and worse all the time. But I used to, I, I sang myself out of a lot of trouble, and that again was part of the self-deprecation. Can you remember a time uh, that you used humor uh, in your public life, either as a congressperson or as a secretary of agriculture? Yeah, I remember. Um, uh, a time that was actually uh, some. You may remember the time when there was the, the House bank scandal, when several of us, including virtually the whole place, had overdrafts at the House bank, and um, they, it wasn't really a bank; it was a cooperative. So checks didn't bounce. But back at home, this wasn't a very popular thing, you know, bouncing checks or overdrafts, and and we didn't have much over. There wasn't much overdraft protection in commercial banking at the time. And I was in real trouble. I, I was walking in parades, and, and there were signs, hey, Glickman, how many checks did you bounce today? And, you know, I knew I was in trouble. So um, I, my chief of staff and I and my wife sat down and wrote a song. They asked me to sing at the local Gridiron Club. And the Gridiron Club used to get two, 3,000 people at an attendance. And I wrote a song uh, to the uh, tune of Hey, Big Spender from the uh, Broadway show Sweet Charity. And um, and I remember one um, line was, uh, got careless, just lost track, didn't know that I'd have to learn to add or subtract. And um, this whole thing, it just made all the difference in the world. It turned it around overnight. I, I did it a few nights at the gridiron thing. And finally people came up to me and they said, you know, I bounced checks too. I, I, I kept saying, well, I really didn't bounce the check. They were covered, but it didn't matter. And so... Uh, that, that those that, that was the kind of thing I remember that really did help me out of a out of a serious jam. Uh, what was uh, as you call it in the book, Rubbergate? Rubbergate. Uh, this was the uh, House Sergeant at Arms uh, uh, carried uh, your checks were deposited there if you were so inclined, and then they it operated like a cooperative, so it wasn't like a formal bank, and all the members' checks were deposited, and you wrote checks out of that account and. A lot of members had overdrafts, and when Newt Gingrich uh, came in, um, he made a pretty big deal out of it. And it was a, uh, at the time, it was one of the biggest scandals in the history of Congress. It, fortunately, people have forgotten about it. You know, you you tell us in the book that you um, and your brother and your sister donated a hundred thousand dollars to Wichita State University to create a seminar program in political humor. Why did you do that? Well, you know, after they died, um, we decided we wanted to keep their legacy alive in some way that was unique to them. And so um, uh, we, we talked to the university, and we did this uh, speaker series uh, on humor. And I'll tell you a funny thing is, is that the day we announced it, we um, uh, did it at the Wichita State University, and the power went out as as – we were talking first about the we talked about Milton and Glickman's uh, Milton and Gladys Glickman scholarship. So I said the Milton Glickman scholarship, and the power went out in the building. And then I started to talk about her. My brother started talking about the Gladys Glickman scholarship, and the power went out again. And this was in the middle of a, of a day, and it's like I'm thinking to myself, well, the joke's on us, you know. <laughs> they they must have been they must have thought it was pretty funny. Are you still having these seminars? No, we ran out of money. Uh, we did it until uh, we had uh, 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 Capital Steps, and we had uh, Norm Ornstein and Al Franken came together, 
and um, uh, we we had quite a few people. Mo Rocca, but uh, when we came out, when we ran out of money, we decided that we weren't going to put any more money into it. I can't resist. Here's another one of your father's um, one-liners. The other night, I wondered what happens to the sun when it goes down at night, and when I woke up the next morning, it dawned on me. Yeah, uh, th- those pretty classic Milton Glickman lines, <laughs> and you know. And uh, when you tell me that story, all I can hear is my mother saying, Milton, not again, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Well, what were they like? Tell us about your Uh, mother and father. Okay, so my my dad was um, raised during the Depression, quit school. He went to the University of Oklahoma and quit after a semester in 1934. And, you know, they were broke or basically out of money. And he had to go back and work in my grandfather's business, the scrap iron business. He was tough. He was, um, he was, you know, school of hard knocks. And while he had this great sense of humor, he also had a kind of Don Corleone quality about him. Uh, you know, he ran that house, and you didn't cross him. Um, loyalty was a big factor to him. Um, and, um, and so, you know, had this combination of, of, of funny and humor and, and a strong sense of loyalty and, and and you gotta, you better go along. And um, my mother was, um, uh, again, much more natural sense of humor. Um, I always, I, I actually kind of got along with her better than my dad because she was much less judgmental and she wasn't Don Corleone. And I don't say this like I use my family as the Godfather because they both had very, very good qualities. But, uh, uh, but, but together they were a good mix. But. I'm not telling you that it, that it, it, for 63 or 64 years, it was a perfect match. It got really much better once we all left and went on our own way, and then they were by, they lived without us, and they seemed to get along a lot better. Any similarities between you and Rhoda, your wife? We're both middle children, um, and um, of course, I have this theory about middle children um, uh, do their best to be conciliators, consensus builders, uh, uh, people who want to be liked. Um, and um, she also has a very good sense of humor. So I don't think we could have survived because we, we're going to be married 55 years in August. It's hard to believe. What about you know? daughter Amy, da- uh, son John? What do they do? So my son is in the movie business. Uh, my son John, he, uh, he has had a very successful career. He's been... For 10 years, he was the president of the film division of MGM Pictures, which um, was just sold to Amazon. But he's, he left there last year to form his own production company called Glickmania Productions. And he's in movies and podcasts and entertainment. And um, my daughter is in public relations. They both live out in Los Angeles. They each have two kids, a boy and a girl. Um, and we go out there quite a bit. We see them a lot. Are they humorous? Uh, they are. Uh, they have great senses of humor. Uh, um, and, uh, I think Amy's more serious, and uh, John. John, in a sense, I always say that the generations skip. John is much more like my father than he is like me. Um, he, he's the best of Don Corleone, but he has some of those <laughs> qualities. All right, I, I can't stop doing this because it's in your book. Uh, my mother used to tell us this joke about their marriage. I never once thought of divorcing your father. She said, "Murdering him." Yes, yes, yes. That was uh, 
That joke I heard a lot, too, and I'm, I'm sure she felt like that at times. When your mother turns 40, your father said, I'm going to trade her in for 220s. Yeah, that was, uh, I think that was a joke he actually came up with himself. He didn't write that. He didn't find that one in a joke book. you got to tell the story about the great Cubs baseball player, Ernie Banks, coming to Wichita. So my dad owned the AAA baseball team of the, uh, for years. Uh, the Wichita team, the Arrows, were affiliated with the Cubs, who, who, you know, until they won the World Series, they were probably one of the worst teams in professional sports in terms of success and and baseball. And Ernie Banks was um, the PR guy for the Cubs, and just a lovely guy, wonderful guy, and people loved him. But he came, I never forget, he used to come and do PR, and and uh, he came and he he either forgot his suitcase or forgot his clothes, and. And uh, so my dad said, well, go buy whatever you want at the local clothing store, thinking that maybe he'd buy a couple of shirts and a pair of underwear. And I think he came out with the entire men's suit division, whatever it was, and uh, spent a little more money than <laughs> what we thought. But, but whatever it was, my dad liked him a lot, and uh, he helped the Arrows a lot uh, in their PR. And you could see why Ernie Banks was such a favorite uh, wherever he went. Uh, one of the companies that used to carry C-SPAN in your state no longer exists. It's been sold two or three times since you uh, had this uh, confrontation with them. Is an outfit was called Multimedia. Tell the story of how you and Multimedia were at uh, loggerheads. Well, this was a cable company headquartered in Wichita. That It was a regional cable company. They had, I don't know, maybe they had a couple million subscribers uh, um, and back then, and but they covered my whole area of Kansas, and and uh, I voted for a uh, a cable bill uh, back in Congress in '92 that uh, had uh, some must carry provisions and other technical provisions that the cable industry didn't like, but the broadcast industry liked, and so they took me on and they ran ads on. Um, um, the cable, the cable stations, and not, like CNN and and whatever else they covered about how how bad their local congressman was, and then they 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 had the audacity of putting a flyer in their bill that they sent to consumers about me, and I, I as I recall it, I had me my my legislation if if it had been successful would have raised cable rates, and uh, you know I like I I went crazy because it was like and the, by the way. Um, their position won overwhelmingly. My position was in the minority, and I on this particular bill, so it didn't matter anyway. And so they took me on, and I decided that they can't let this happen. So I made a big deal about it. We had big rallies in front of their uh, uh, their their headquarters. The local newspaper called me David versus Goliath. Uh, one of the national networks, CBS, came and did a thing on CBS News and. And um, and so and I won that election and uh, and it was it was one of the most stupid things I've ever seen a corporation do. Well, I can't uh, get out of this growing up Glickman chapter uh, and to ask you to tell the story about Aunt Shirley. Yeah, well, my my uh, <laughs> my poor Aunt Shirley. Uh, so my 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 mother and father uh, uh, had a sister-in-law that. Uh, at times that they had conflicts with. And, of course, as a kid, you always want to please your parents. And so we were at, I remember, the Alice Hotel in Wichita, and Aunt Shirley was sitting next to me, and she had a, a beaver coat, a new beaver coat. And 
I took this big slab of butter and I put it all over the back of her coat so she couldn't see it. And she was so distressed. And I thought I had done something good because I thought my mother would appreciate the fact that I had taken on my Aunt Shirley. My mother wasn't particularly happy with me. At least, at least I suffered a little bit because of that. You had a struggle over deferments and what to do about the Vietnam War. Tell us that. Well, you know, I was in college. I went to the University of Michigan, which was the one of the hotbeds of anti-war activism. That's where Tom Hayden, uh, Jane Fonda, one of one of Jane Fonda's husbands, uh, was at, and 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 so um, uh, it was right in the middle of the Vietnam War, sixty-five, sixty-six, at the beginning of the war, and um, I, I wasn't in the middle of the anti-war sentiment, but. My dad was very anti-war. He said, "We'll never win this war. This is, this is just a, just going to we're going to kill hundreds of thousands of people." And and so um, and I, I'll never forget this. They they gave a test like an an SAT test to stay out of the war. And if you would score 80 on that test, it was like math and science. You'd stay out of it. And it was called a selective service qualification test. And I took the test and got an 80, which was the minimum. Score. The courts then ruled it unconstitutional. This test, but it, it was, uh, you know, it was like me and most of my colleagues, um, at least in, in college at that time, really did do a, spend a lot of time looking at ways to figure out how to continue and get deferments. You know, I don't know whether you called them this, but I remember those days. I'm older than you are, um, and they had such a thing called a Kennedy father and i noticed your father said go have a baby why would he do that well he was so against the war we were going to get married in august and and i think we got engaged the previous november december and he said have a baby you you know because you could get a deferment uh and i said well we're not married yet and he says no go ahead go ahead have the baby and you know it's just it's just like uh i mean today that might not be viewed as so outrageous but then you know there were i mean he just he felt so strongly about this uh, we didn't have have the baby by the way but uh um he it, it is it is it was not altogether all that unique there were other people who were encouraging people to do the same thing well i, I know and i remember it, but why would they why would the government suggest that if you had a child then you wouldn't have to go to war um yeah. would that ever work today um, no, but it was, uh, you, you, for a while at least, you know, there were, there was plenty of pool of people to go. And so they, they did, they, they had various deferments, student deferments and, uh, all sorts of medical deferments. And, um, they did have the baby, called it the baby deferment. And it lasted for a while until the end of the war. And then they, you know, like, I remember 1971 or so, they started drafting people w- with children. I, I've known you uh, for about 52 years. Um, we were both very young when we came to Washington. And I, when I came on this paragraph in your book, at the end, I said, Dan Glickman really said this? And I'm going to read it to you. Because this is when you were, it seems to me, working up um, some pretty strong feelings about what's happened in this town. You said, all joking aside, one can hold conservative or liberal political views. But if you are an asshole with a closed mind, 
or have little to no empathy for what your adversary or competitor is feeling or what struggles one uh, has faced, you're not only a jerk, you will never be a positive force to solve any of our nation's problems. And then you said in the next sentence, don't be a jerk. That's pretty strong coming from Dan Gluckman. Where, how did yeah, you? You know, I, I certainly I certainly thought that and still think that. And and, I, and I'll be honest with you is, is that like most successful politicians are not like that at all. You know, I had my differences with George W. Bush, but he was not a jerk. He was a decent man. I just, I think he made some mistakes during the Iraq War, but but he also made some great things in terms of uh, uh, AIDS and malaria in Africa and that kind of thing. And um, I, 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 as I look back at national leaders, I have found very few leaders to, to reflect how I characterize that as you read it. I think Donald Trump characterizes that perfectly as I read it. Um, because he showed no empathy for anybody. And I think that without empathy, you cannot really serve your country very well. Now, you, But you don't normally talk that way, so something must really be uh, bothering you about all this. Well, you know, I mean, look, the last four years have been tough. And, and you know, it's, I don't know, maybe it's because I was raised or who knows why it was, but I, I just hate bullies. And... Um, and uh, where I see them in the, in the political system, it just may, maybe reminds me of my youth, or maybe I was bullied in high school, or who knows what, what the deal was, or maybe it's my natural predilection to avoid conflict. But uh, um, th- 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 that describes to me what a bully is. And, of course, I thought Trump fit, fit that description perfectly. You said this about yourself. You said it's it's just my natural personality. Yes, I'll say it. I'm a nice guy. I am. It's not only natural. I choose to be this way. It's a commitment to embody our better angels. Yeah, you know, um, maybe that's a little bit uh, moralistic, but... Um, uh, I, yeah, I think I got that from my parents. I remember there was a congressman from Ohio. His name was Tom Kindness. I don't know if you remember him or not. Yes. He served when I was there. And he had this great bumper sticker, Kindness Works. And I just, I still think about that. It, 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 it makes a, it makes a difference. Uh, um, you, you can, you can win more friends with honey than you can with vinegar. That's the basic, uh, allegory. You went on to be a congressman after I first met you. You went on to be the Secretary of Agriculture. You went on to be the head of the Motion Picture um, Association. But I first met you sitting at what's called a robo-pen, signing letters that senators were writing. And I wondered, did, did that ever strike you as being a cynical part of Washington where the senator never saw the letter and you're sitting there signing with a mechanical pen you know i think i was making five dollars and 15 cents an hour which was a heck of a lot of money in those days and so i you know and i used to come in or if you recall early in the morning and uh sign those letters and you know the pen would actually sign it like the senator's uh name his name is peter dominic we both worked for him and um no it, it didn't strike me as particularly cynical um um you know it just it's I mean, you get thousands of letters. How are you going to respond to people? So it it was it it, it was fine. We I had, a, I had a lot of fun doing that job. You quote Jesse Unruh, 
probably most people today never heard of him, the legendary former assembly speaker in California who once said, if you can't, can't take their money, drink their booze, eat their food, screw their women, and vote against them, you don't belong here, unquote. Yeah, uh, Jesse was a very secure man. And uh, I think that uh, at least with respect to the taking of their money, uh, and I won't argue, I won't talk about the other things that you just mentioned, I think that the politics of today is, is, is changed. I think that the metastasis of massive amounts of money in politics have made it very difficult for politicians to resist um, going along um, with uh, the, with donors, uh, particularly with the massive amounts of money that are being spent in politics. When I first ran for Congress, Brian, I spent $100,000 on my first race total, primary and general, running against an incumbent congressman, and he spent $100,000. Today, you'd be spending $100,000 a day, probably, um, to raise money in a competitive seat. And so when you raise that kind of money, it just defies the laws of nature to think that you're going to be able to take that person in the rear end once you take their money. As I was reading your book, I wrote down this. Why is it the political world you most admire no longer exists? Um, well, maybe that's a bit of an overstatement. Uh, but uh, the, the political world I admire, I don't know, I hope there's not all too much nostalgia in that statement, because the political world has always been rough and tumble. But, uh, but my, my experience in the political world is people working together to get things done. I, never, I, again, I still remember Bob Dole telling me once, I don't remember in what context, he says, if you don't get things done, there's no reason to be in this job, period. And um, I think that's kind of been a motto that I've tried to live by. You tell a story about something you wanted badly when you were an agriculture secretary, and you signed personal letters, if I understand it correctly, and had them placed on every senator's desk in order to get it passed. Tell that. Yeah, I, mean, I did that on, on, a, on, a, on a few occasions. A lot of them uh, in, were involved with forest service issues because the agriculture department operated the forest service actually it's the biggest part of the of the agriculture department but um, i had uh, part of being both a congressman and being an executive branch is you have a much better understanding of what makes congressmen tick and what makes them work and first thing that makes them work is how they're viewed in their own districts and the second thing that makes them work is you stroke their egos and so I was the when I put things on 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 wrote a letter and put it on everybody's desk. I think it was really doing the second. Did 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 you actually handwrite each one of those? I probably handwrote some and 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 signed them all, but wrote notes on all of them. That's for sure. And how did I you? I always found I always found that writing notes on letters um, was a really a great way of getting constituents, particularly, to think that they were getting special attention. But as you know, not everybody can place something on a senator's desk. How did you get that done? Well, you know, as secretary, you uh, have, um, uh, you know, a letter from the secretary of agriculture or the secretary of anything generally gets to the top. I mean, it'll go to the chief of staff, but generally it ends up in the right place. I mean, I don't know if all of them read them or not, but I, I suspect a lot of them did. You ran the Motion Picture Association, your son's in the movies, and then you say this on 
at least the book that I have on uh, page 224, uh, you're talking about Donald Trump. He was also a product of our national obsession with TV and celebrity. Aren't you obsessed with all that? You love movies. Yeah, I love movies, but uh, I don't have to be on television myself all the time. And it doesn't all have to be about me. And I don't have Trump steak, Trump ties, Trump socks. My name's not on everything. Uh, but, yeah, I love movies. I, I think um, movies and television both are very much a part of America's uh, soft power. And, um, um, you know, I, uh, I, 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 and I like all kinds of movies. You know, I've, people will sometimes ask me what my favorite movie is. And I said, well, I liked Animal House a lot because it reminded me of my fraternity in college. And I like Gandhi because it reminded me of courage and greatness and Shawshank Redemption. And, of course, the, my favorite movies were Godfather 1 and Godfather 2. But, um, but um, you, you know, you can like movies and television sto- uh, uh, shows. Every, everybody's kind of a celebrity freak in this world. Everybody li- loves celebrities, whether it's sports or entertainment. But um, uh, most people don't have to be one all the time. What did you take away from your six years at the MPAA, the Motion Picture Association? Uh, it's a tough job. The movie industry is um, dog-eat-dog, hyper-competitive. Um, uh, the average movie costs to make and market anywhere between 50 to $150 million. Um, and you, don't, you can spend all that money, and then one weekend they, you blow it away. And so, therefore, it's, it's highly competitive and raw. And it can be a lot meaner than politics. But I also met some of the most interesting um, people and, and terrific leaders that I'd met before. My job did not involve me being with a lot of celebrities. I was with them on occasion. I was more on the business side and lobbying for tax or trade or, or anti-censorship type of things. But it was fun. And I, I will have to tell you, going on the red carpet... At times, I would do that with my wife, and I would think to myself, here's the grandson from a guy from Belarus who ended up on the red carpet. Isn't that something? (laughs) You say, our journalists need to rediscover a degree of professionalism that abhors any implication of bias. It's easy to go on social media and see the political views of almost any journalist. What are you getting at there? Well, not you, Brian Lamb, certainly, but... But, you know, I mean, the journalists today uh, are doing a lot of different things. Uh, they're doing a huge amount of commentary. Uh, it's more, more electronic journalists. Uh, but, you, you know, I, it, it's just it's a different world. You find print journalists who are commentators on, 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 on television, cable television shows. And, and um, um, I, I still think that the network anchors, for the most part, are, are pretty uh, objective. But um, we have a, a kind of blended group of journalists who are some of them are entertainers and 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 and, and most of them have biases and, and you can see them very easily. And and they're not necessarily journalists in the classic sense of the word, but uh, to the to the public, they appear to be journalists because they're on the screen that they're watching. One of your messages and we'll wrap this up um, is that you need to listen how often uh, how and i'm asking this obviously with a tone in my voice how often do you ever find anybody in washington listening uh there you know it's funny uh uh certainly uh it's 
it's uh, being in a period of reflection requires listening and the political system doesn't encourage listening because they it encourages people to uh, be more hyperbolic and take positions right away and they get locked in and they can't pull themselves out and that's why i kind of admire politicians who don't necessarily take a stand instantaneously and are able to make decisions based upon uh, the best information that that they have. And a lot of politicians get criticized uh, who aren't like out there with a with an immediate strong position to build up their base. Um, my I think it was my mother, but uh, I forgot who said you have two ears and one mouth for a simple reason. And I think that's true. And I I still think the best politicians are good listeners. I just finished uh, uh, President Obama's book. And um, he's a pretty good listener, as, uh, as you, you know, he reflected and made, made his decisions a- after he listened. And, um, and you know, so, um, and, he, and, and I also read, a, Reagan used to do that a lot. I mean, he would listen. Whether he came down with the conclusion I liked or not was a different story. But good listeners are the smartest people and the most necessary politicians. This book called Laughing at Myself can be found where if somebody wants to read it? Well, it'll be on Amazon. The book will actually won't be out until the end of the week, and it's on Amazon and at the University of Kansas Press, and it'll be available in hopefully in most bookstores. Dan Glickman, thank you so much for your time. Well, and thank you, Brian Lamb, and thanks to C-SPAN and your leadership for everything you've done as well. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.